Mark 14, 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, it's great to be here with you, for those in the room, um, good to see you, and everyone online, uh, great to be with you guys as well, um, for what's just the next in a string of really weird firsts for us as a church, and probably for everyone in just all the different aspects of life that have been affected by COVID, but it is really nice that things are kind of lifting a bit and getting back to normal. I've loved today. We had um, this morning, my missional community got to come along. That was really fun. And my family was there. So I've had a great day at church. Um, and so looking forward to seeing the rest of you on your week um, when that happens coming up. Um, I don't know what your guys' experience of COVID have, has been. Uh, it's probably been very mixed. But I remember early on, it's been like quite a while we've been in this now. I think it was about three months ago that they started really kind of locking things down, shutting down everything in public, and people started spending time at home. And I remember back then, one of the things that as people kind of became homebodies was there was a lot of kind of anticipation about the things that we'd be able to achieve whilst in lockdown. I know I had a kind of a bit of a bucket list of what I'm going to do with all this kind of extra time with more time at home. Um, and now that we've kind of come out of lockdown, I'm realising that for the most part, that was a bit of a failure. I, one of my big jobs I was going to do was to kind of redirect some guttering that kind of runs water onto our outside seating area, went to Bunnings and like when all the Bunnings was like going nuts, everyone doing the home renos, bought some pipes and they've just been sitting there like where I put them the moment I got home, didn't get that job done. Um, I bought a couple of books to read, I was like we can have time for that, um, didn't open those and one of the main things I wanted to achieve in lockdown was to kind of up my cooking game. I've got like a very limited repertoire of things that I can cook to a satisfactory level. And I was like now more than ever I can kind of improve that my wife's, we've got a little baby, so I'm like, it'll serve her, she'll love it, I'll make all these meals. I think I realised last week that I only learnt one new meal in the last four months. So I tried to rectify that this week with a, a new recipe. It was going to be a, a kind of jacket sweet potatoes with chorizo and silver beet toppings, and it was going to look really nice. So I dished this, this, this plate up, and it just looked terrible, and it tasted worse than it looked. Um, and so that, was a bit, that wasn't great, I wasn't too impressed with what I did. And I found out later that night that Sarah, my wife, had taken a picture of it and shared it with our like, extended family WhatsApp, um, which is really disappointing. Because when you fail, you kind of want to keep that under wraps. You don't want your, fail- your failures made public. Like, we know that. Like, if, you, if I was to look at your Instagrams, you'd see a lot more of the successes in your life. You'd see a lot more graduations than you do kind of failing a subject and repeating. 
And I think this is the case with all of life. Like, we, we want to put our successes out there and just kind of keep our failures quiet. I think if anyone had a genuinely honest resume, no one would have a job. I know I wouldn't. I'd have, you know, uh, 2007, worked at a chemist and occasionally stole things when I wanted them. Um, I'd have uh, 2009, fired from the fish markets through being lazy. Um, that, uh, but luckily, I don't have that because we kind of we keep our failures quiet and we put forward the better things about us. And I think that's the case with all people. So I wonder, if you um, had the task of writing a document that was going to have a, a fair bit about you in it, it was going to be read for uh, over 2,000 years by more people on the planet than kind of any other bit of literature, I wonder how you would choose to portray yourself. Because um, I think what is really curious about the Bible, um, and something you've got to reckon with no matter what you make of the Bible, is just how, how the founders of Christianity who wrote the Bible portray themselves. Uh, many of you will know, but Christianity was started by a small group of men and women um, who were followers of Jesus. And in particular, Jesus had these 12 disciples, these 12 apprentices that were a mix of ex-fishermen, tax agents, religious nerds, freedom fighters, all kind of hobbled together. And these guys, along with a few others in the early church, were responsible for putting together the foundation documents of what has become the biggest world religion. And um, four of these documents are narrative accounts of Jesus' life, uh, teaching, death, and resurrection. And two of those, Matthew and John, are written by uh, the disciples Matthew and John. And the other two, Luke and Mark, which is the one we're looking at, were written in close connection with these, these early followers. And so as you read these narrative accounts of Jesus' life, you actually get the, the authors, the writers, tied up and mixed out throughout the story. And what is curious about it is the fact that these early founders of Christianity portray themselves, for the most part, to be absolute failures which I think is unique and it's something to, to think about. There's something actually integral to Christianity that, that means that these guys are happy to kind of show themselves to just not being that great. And so as we as a church are seeking to be followers of Jesus, I think there's something helpful and comforting in this account, um, particularly if you feel like your story of following Jesus is a story of compromise and failure and weak faith. So we're going to jump straight into this narrative here, and we've got a fair bit to get through, but just to be looking through this and just be looking at the ways that these disciples are portrayed in the narrative. The context of the passage that we're looking at today, it's, um, it's coming immediately after the Last Supper, which we looked at last week. So he's just had these 12, 12 disciples uh, for a final meal before he said he's going to go and, and die and then rise again. He said he's going to be betrayed and handed over and crucified. And after this dinner, they've gone out uh, to a a place called the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem, just kind of on the outskirts of the city. And and we'll pick up the the story at verse 26, which will come up on the screen as well. And it starts, And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So the very first thing Jesus says in this particular part of the narrative is you will all fall away, which is a bit of a kind of uh, a mood dampener to start the whole thing off. And he quotes this line from Zechariah, which is this Old Testament prophet, that they're all going to kind of betray him and scatter the same way that sheep would if the, if the shepherd disappeared. He's saying to them, you are going to fail at being a follower. And Peter responds to this because he doesn't quite believe it. He says, even though they fall, will all fall away, I will not. 
Now, you've got to assume at this point that maybe Peter's kind of sat it up to Jesus and whispered in his ear because if he said this out loud, he's kind of thrown all of his friends under the bus. It's um, a bit like, you know, if you remember back to being in school, whenever the teacher would leave the room and everyone would talk and throw paper airplanes, there was always the one kid that when the teacher came back would be like, Miss, everyone was talking when you were out of the room and then just everyone just gives them the death stare and just waits for recess for some revenge. I wonder if that's what's happening here because Peter's just basically not wanting to contradict Jesus altogether. He hasn't said, Jesus, you, you're wrong. He's like, well, Jesus, you're actually 99% right. They might all fall away, but I won't. He's got this confidence. That he's going he's gonna to be strong. He's going to follow through. And so Jesus puts him in his place. In verse 30, he says, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So Jesus is like, no, I'm, I'm actually pretty serious about this. I, I know what's going to happen. I'm Jesus. Um, and you are going to betray me. Um, you can't even make it a night. But Peter is just so confident. And he even ups kind of, he's not just saying he won't deny Jesus. He's, he's saying he'll even be willing to go and die with him. And all the others stay the same. So that frames what we're now going to look at in the, in the story of what happens in this Garden of Gethsemane that Jez read for us just before. The narrative continues in verse 32. It says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. Now it's night, it's late, they've had this last supper already, and they've trekked it out of Jerusalem into presumably where they're going to camp the night, given that they're not from Jerusalem, they're strangers in that, in that area. So this place called Gethsemane, which means the oil press, so it's at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, presumably where they pressed olive oil. And, and it's dark. Um, it's the middle of the night, but Jesus doesn't instruct his followers just to go to sleep and set up camp. Um, he instructs these followers who have just pledged their allegiance to him to sit and to pray. Then in verse 33, it says Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they, these are like his closest three friends. They were the very first followers he called, and they were all you know, fishermen right back at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. We met them. And it says that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he asks that they would just watch over him. He says that his soul is sorrowful, even to the point of death. And he just asks him to remain there and watch. Now this narrative, I think, is one of the parts of the Bible that we need to really just check our preconceptions that we might have of what Jesus is like, and particularly what, what Jesus' internal world would be like. Um, I think sometimes our picture of Jesus is maybe just not quite what, it, what the story says that it is. If you Google the Garden of Gethsemane on like, Google Images, you'll, you'll get a lot of Renaissance art that kind of picture this scene. And um, apart from the fact that Jesus is white, which is a, a definite error, these, these pictures of Jesus have him kind of with a halo over him. Even though it's kind of dark, there's kind of like some light shining on heaven on him, so he's illuminated. And his face is this kind of tranquil, kind of half-looking-up, kind of droopy face, but completely at peace with what's going on. That's how Jesus is portrayed in art. And so I don't know if you picture that as being Jesus, this guy that's God pretending to be a person, but not even pretending that well, because you can kind of see there's something not right about this guy. Um, what, this, what this describes here, though, in this text, is I think more than anything what you'd probably put down to being a panic attack. He says that he's just so distressed that he feels like he's dying, like his soul is troubled to the point of death. He's sorrowful. Verse 35 says that he falls to the ground under the weight of what he's feeling. You know, I don't know if you've had that experience of just being so overwhelmed that you can't even bring yourself to stand up. 
It's not a picture of stoic calmness. It's a picture of someone overwhelmed with severe pain, anxiety, and distress. And some of you may know this feeling of having you know, some negative emotion just weighing on you so much that it just kind of cripples you, whether that's the pain that you've experienced in grief or loss or anxiety about some upcoming major event that's just you can't, you can't sleep, you can't think straight because of the trouble it's causing you. Um, or, or maybe just something completely irrational. Maybe some of you have just had irrational panic attacks where you've just felt this everything is wrong, like you're going to explode. I've had friends who have gone to hospital in the midst of a panic attack because for them it felt like they were having a heart attack. There was something so, so wrong about what was going on inside them. One of the other Gospels, in, when it talks about this scene, it talks about uh, Jesus sweating blood in, the, in the, this phenomenon which does exist where you can be so overwhelmed and stressed that the blood capillaries under your skin burst and you, you start sweating blood. Jesus is experiencing a huge weight of emotion. It's burdening him. Like you'd imagine an Anzac soldier would be feeling on the landing craft up to the beaches of Gallipoli, knowing that what he's about to go through is just going to be absolutely horrific. And so very humanly, as Jesus experiences this, he turns to his friends and says, guys, can you just, can you just stay and watch? Can you just stay up with me? Can you just be with me during this time? Jesus is human. And he's overwhelmed with, with human emotion. He's not disconnected. He's not kind of uh, spared the, the, this, this burden of suffering that's just common to so many. So if, you, if you've had that experience, it's like I find it encouraging to know I can relate. Jesus can relate to me in that. Jesus has been there. Jesus has spent a night absolutely just broken in, under, throughout the darkness in this garden 2,000 years ago. Jesus knows what it's like. But I think while it's relatable, there's also something that's really unique about what Jesus is going through. And it's not that he's going to die. Um, I reckon for, for me, certainly, if I knew I was going to be crucified in a day or so, I'd, I would be, I'd be stressed, I'd be, be panicking. But many throughout history have gone to their deaths like, stoically and bravely and confidently. So I think what's going on for Jesus is something more than just this physical death he knows he's going to experience. We see, what's, we see what's going on, I think, in the next verse, in verse 36. In this prayer that Jesus prays to his Father. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus prays this prayer of faith. He calls on his Father, recognizing that he can do all things. And then he makes this request that reveals what it is he's fearing most, what it is that's weighing on his soul. He says, remove this cup from me which might be a, a strange line to kind of have in, in isolation, but for him it wasn't because the main image, the main metaphor for the, the wrath and judgment and anger of God in the Old Testament of the Bible that Jesus knew well was a picture of a cup. The idea that God was preparing a, a, a cup of wine mixed with, um, with flavors and, and herbs that would be sweet to drink, but that ultimately the drinker, would have destruction and undoing brought upon them. You see this in the, in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Jeremiah, when God talks about his anger and punishment coming on those who have rejected him. It's this image of a cup. God's judgment, as far as the Bible's concerned, it's not picturing a lightning bolt from the sky. 
like a, a giant foot coming and just squishing you. It's a picture of a cup. And so when Jesus says, take this cup from me, he's saying, God, take your anger, your wrath, your judgment that you've put before me away. That is what Jesus is coming up against. God's anger against sin. Now, I know for a lot of people in our culture, this is something that kind of grates up against us, the idea that God would have anger, that God would, would be a God of judgment, that God would be a God of, of vengeance, or any of these kind of things. But I want to put to you that you can't have a loving God without having a God who becomes angry at the wrongdoings in the world. I read this great quote this week in this book called Confronting Christianity. It's well worth the read by, the, by an author, Rebecca McLaughlin. And um, I thought I'd just read it because I found it so helpful. Um, and I've got it, got it here. It says, um, God's love and God's judgment cannot be pulled apart. Think of the anger you feel when you see school children shot, women raped, or people beaten because of the color of their skin. Think of your anger at the slave trade, the Holocaust, and global sex trafficking. When you analyze that anger, the root is love. No one who regards those of other races as subhuman cares about racial exploitation. No one who believes that women or children are property cares about sexual abuse. And the more we love, the more easily our anger is kindled. We rush to defend our children from the least attack because we love them. Anyone who harms them inspires our fury. Isn't that the case? That we can all relate to with loving someone so much that, that when they are threatened or when they are harmed or when they are wronged, it arouses our anger. But we love imperfectly. God loves perfectly. God's love is a, just a magnitude beyond description greater than ours. So sin fills him with a righteous fury, a holy anger. And Jesus is preparing to face the anger of God against all sin of all people. God's anger at abuse, at slavery, at every wicked thing that you and I have done or thought would be on him. And it fills him with anguish. So Jesus asks if there's any other way, but he knows that there's not because this is his plan. This is why he came into the world and he knows that. That he is God in the flesh coming into this world to take the punishment, take the wrath, take the anger on himself. But it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's pleasant. It doesn't mean he's kind of stoic and just removed. He feels it. So in faith he submits and he prays, not my will but yours be done. In faith Jesus doesn't waver. In faith, he submits himself to the will of God. He could have chosen another road. He could have left. He could have not gone through with it and allowed God's wrath to remain on, on us and on his disciples. But in faith, he chooses to go to the cross and die. So compare that faithfulness with, with how the rest of his disciples are faring as we continue on. Verse 37 says that he comes out and finds it. It says, He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Now, it might look a bit random that he's calling Peter Simon. Like, is that some kind of insult that we're kind of missing? Um, but, but Simon was, was, was Peter's name originally. Jesus gave him the name Peter, which means rock, um, in the sense that, you know, he's kind of 
steadfast. But I think, in, I think it's just even just interesting here. He doesn't get called Peter, he gets called Simon because what he's doing is the opposite of being this kind of strong, rock-like, steady character. He's so weak, he can't even stay awake for an hour when he's asked to. Even though he's just claimed to be willing to die with Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus says to him, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What Jesus is doing for Peter is he's giving him an opportunity to work on his soul. Peter has said, I'll die with you. Jesus said, you're not. You're going to betray me three times. But it's almost like he's even giving him a little bit of grace to say, look, why don't you at least stay up and pray over your own soul, knowing that you're a weak person, and then maybe you'll actually pass the test. But even then, Peter neglects this one opportunity he's got to do work on his soul. He should be praying the same prayer that Jesus is, that God would just be with him and enable him through this time of suffering that's before him. But he sleeps. When Jesus tells him to do battle with his soul, he sleeps. And so you see as the narrative goes on, he, Jesus goes back and prays and comes back and finds the disciples sleeping a second time. Jesus goes back, prays, comes back and finds the disciples sleeping a third time. They fail the time that Jesus needs them most. And it's hard not to see this in light of Jesus saying he'll be betrayed three times. And so eventually Jesus says, enough, we're done, this is it, and it's, this is time. Everything we've been preparing for, here it is. And in verse 43, it says, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. So Jesus and the twelve, they're in the dark in this, kind of, in this garden. And so rather than just trying to kind of take on all twelve of them in a, in a fight, Judas, the betrayer, and this kind of army come, and Judas identifies Jesus with a kiss so that they can all just kind of just get on him so they don't have to fight everyone. And then things heat up. Verse 47, it says, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Mark records this moment of passion of one of the disciples, um, which almost looks like they've kind of maybe do have a bit of courage and they're doing things right. But we, we know from another account, the Gospel of John, that this is Peter that takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Now, either Peter's got really, really good aim and was aiming for the ear and cut it off, or more likely he's got terrible aim, was aiming to cut off his head and just missed and got his ear. So he can't even do that right. But, um, but there is this thing with Peter. He's willing to kill for Jesus. There is some sort of courage in there, but it's the exact opposite of what Jesus is looking for. Jesus has been like rattling on quite a bit about turning the other cheek, about living peaceably, about being humble, and so, again, Peter fails. He does, like, it's like he hasn't been listening to a thing that Jesus has said. Jesus is not there for a war. He's there to, to die. Jesus, on the other hand, goes another route. Jesus says in verse 48, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Jesus has resolved. He, he's not going to put up a fight. He's going to allow this to happen because that is why he came. And he's, pre he's prepared his soul and he's submitted himself to the will of God and he's going to go through with it. But everyone else, they flee. 
And so we come to the end of this account of the Garden of Gethsemane and what happens there with just one more verse in verse 51, two more verses rather, where it says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That's the end of that, that particular story. And that's the image you're left with. This is this guy, this nameless guy, running through the woods naked. Um, it's an embarrassing ending. This is like, it's, it's meant to be embarrassing. And you know, we're kind of desensitized. For the ancient Near Eastern readers, like nudity wasn't, it was like, it was a shameful thing. So this picture is just shameful. It's humiliating. I, I was trying to think of something it would be like, I think it would genuinely be like kind of telling the story about your kind of day or what you've been doing. And then just have, ending the story with, and then I pooed my pants. And like, if you just kind of put out there, like, it doesn't matter what else you've said in the story, there is one thing that people are left with, which is that you've, really? Like, you've humiliated yourself. So that's what you're left with. This failure. The, the, the disciples started off their journey in the book of Mark, if you remember back 18 weeks ago, with Jesus saying, leave everything and follow me. And they did that. But now they're leaving everything, even their clothes, to get away from him. The contrast in this story, like it couldn't be more, more obvious between Jesus on one side being resolute and faithful and trusting in God and putting others first and the disciples who are doubting, failing, sleepy, weak, abandoning Jesus and humiliated. So what do we do with this account? Um, how should we go out and live our lives after, after reading this? I'll tell you what the point of this story isn't. The point of this story isn't, you've seen two types of people, so don't, don't be like the followers, but be like Jesus. Um, that might be a, a kind of good ambition to have, but, um, but if you think that's, if that's the take-home message, you're going to fail within a day. The, the point of this story is, you and I are exactly like these followers of Jesus. So thank God that Jesus isn't. In this story, I'm not the faithful Jesus willing to face suffering for the good of the world, wholeheartedly trusting that God has it under control and he has my best interests. I'm the naked idiot running through the forest because I doubt that Jesus will follow through with his word. When I look at the disciples in this story, I just see a mirror held up against my own heart. At best, they're well-meaning. They, they like you got to. They wanted to follow Jesus. They just failed horribly. And I think that's true of me. At best, I'm well-meaning. But how many times has Jesus given me an opportunity to, to, to do work on my soul, to bring it before him, to prepare myself to live a life that does, in fact, follow Jesus where he wants me to go so I might not fall into temptation and I just haven't done it and then I haven't done it the next day and then I haven't done it the next day? How many times have I realized that Jesus is leading me somewhere difficult and so I've just stopped and gone the other way. How many times have I not lived my life even Jesus' way, but the, but the impulses that undergird my decisions have just been so counter the teaching of Jesus to, to love others first? How many times have I doubted Jesus' claims? Like, if, I don't know if you caught it earlier on in the passage, but Jesus reminds them that he will after he's killed, come back and go before them into Jerusalem. How many times have I not believed Jesus' claims about himself? Now, I know that for some of you guys, 
Um, right now, the quality of your faith, it's, it's like it's just hanging on by a thread. You're mixed with doubt and uncertainty. Uh, you've just, you look at your, your week or your month or your year and it's just a string of compromise and failure and ignoring and abandoning Jesus. And you're not where you thought you would and you haven't followed through with probably where you thought you'd be as, as a Christian. I maybe you even thought this time of COVID was going to be a time that you were going to just like, really press into your faith and grow and spend time with Jesus, but, but it hasn't been. Um, thankfully, some of you aren't in that season at all. You're in a season of thriving and um, and being close and just like in walking with Jesus. But eventually we all have these, these moments because we're weak, sinful humans. This passage tells us not to look to ourselves, but to look to Jesus. In Jesus there is hope. In Jesus there is, there is someone who followed through. In Jesus there is someone who is faithful. In Jesus, there, there is the one who, when facing his moment of trial, did not waver. He trusted and obeyed out of love for the followers who failed him. And this is the gospel. That we're not saved because we're steadfast and consistent and, uh, and follow Jesus perfectly. We're saved because Jesus did. As Christians, we say that we're saved by, by faith. And I think, and that's true. And I think sometimes though we... we we sort of twist that to mean that there's sort of pressure on us to have enough faith to warrant saving. To believe hard enough or to, to play it out in our life enough. And when we're not, we, we worry that well, then maybe, maybe we're, not, we're not good enough. Maybe Jesus isn't going to come through for us. But the question isn't how strong is your faith, it's who is your faith in? Tim Keller has this great illustration um, where, he, where he writes, Imagine you're on a high cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you as you fall is a branch sticking out of the very edge of the cliff. It is your only hope and it is more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? If your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you're lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty, that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you'll be saved. Why? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. He goes on to say it's not the depth and purity of your heart, but the work of Jesus on your behalf that saves you. Now, beyond this story, Jesus' followers, they did go on um, to, to go deeper in their faith, to, to, to trust Jesus to the point of death, most of them. And I think that's our hope for ourselves, that we actually would grow in our faith and, and follow Jesus more consistently um, as our life goes on. But that's not where our hope is found. Our hope is found in what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, and that alone. This story is here to remind us that there is space to fail as a follower of Jesus. So the heartbeat of Jesus' followers, the heartbeat of the church, should be that we are a community of the weak. We are a community of failures. It might sadden us, but it shouldn't surprise us when those who are walking alongside us do fail from time to time. We shouldn't be surprised. And, And what we should be is a group of people who are ready to help them up. The church is more than anything, I think, like an Alcoholics Anonymous for recovering sinners. 
It's not a place for the perfect to hang out. And so I just want to encourage you, it's quite a simple application for this week. As we continue as a church to press on, encouraging one another to follow Jesus in all of life, I want to encourage you to be open about your failure, to be open about your doubts if you have them and and the weakness of your faith, and together to help one another up, to together be pointing people to Jesus, the fact that he is consistent, he is steadfast, he is faithful and he loves us. We are frail Our faith is often weak, but Jesus isn't. In particular, you might, like I guess what these disciples have experienced, be very acutely aware of some particular failings in your life. Maybe maybe they're they're fresh in your mind, just even as a pattern of how you've been living over this time. Today's the day that you can go to God and own that. You can... You can just spend in your, in your own head, just be talking to God and saying, yeah, God, that's me. I'm a failure. I, I don't know. I don't believe the way that I ought. I don't trust you the way that I ought. But forgive me. And you can rest assured that you have that forgiveness. Because when Jesus faced his test, he passed. He went forward and he suffered because he loves you. So what we're going to do now, we're going to spend some time praying together and then we're going to sing and as we sing this, this next song, which, which is a reflection on the faithfulness of God, this is a God who does not uh, break his promises. This is a God who, who doesn't waver. This is a God who loves us consistently and will hold on to us. To be reminding ourselves of that truth, that our hope is not in us. It's in the faithfulness of our God. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this, uh, this account that reminds us that even even those who knew Jesus on, a, on an intimate, uh, physical, ate meals with him sort of level, still failed. That, that the fact that our hearts are broken and weak and, and, and failing um, is tragic and we hate it, but it is common to all. And you know that and you love us despite of our sin. So we just pray that we would be people who, um, who take our failure to the cross, who take our sin to the cross, Lay it there and receive forgiveness. For any of us uh, here in the building or at home on, on, on our couches who are feeling the weight of that guilt that comes from letting you down, that you would just right now wash that away, that you would uh, remind us of your great and perfect love. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in him we have hope. And we pray that you'll continue to build us up as a church of people that look to him, not to ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name.